If you've uh, visited for the past couple weeks, you still have not heard our our senior pastor, Dr. Dave Silvernail. He is uh, having wonderful extended time on vacation and study leave, uh, but he will be back next week, so you'll hear him the next few weeks. Um, so you've had a, a good stream of, of preachers, a couple of our elders and uh, two of our pastors now. If you haven't, if I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the associate pastors. I'm Dave Dorst, and uh, my family's also coming back tomorrow. I, I had to come back from vacation after just a week. They get to stay for three weeks on the beach in Maine, so um, somehow I made it without them, but uh, looking forward to them coming back. As you're probably aware, some more than others, we are three weeks away. School, but football season. (laughs) Come on, priorities. Some of you will note that with passing interest. Okay, great. Another another sports season starts up. Um, Others of you will dread that pronouncement, knowing that you're uh, normally communicative, loving husband is going to turn into a raving lunatic, (laughs) screaming at the games and texting his buddies and messing with his fantasy football lineup. And and some of you are that raving lunatic husband, and you're probably not going to hear a lot of this sermon. You're going to drift off into football dreamland, but stay with me. I mean, now that we can watch football, college football all day Saturday, and pro football most of the day Sunday, and then Monday night, Thursday night, I mean, we probably have some football widows here, right? It's, it can be a little all-consuming, I've heard. Um, <laughs> plus, we got football on your phone. Anybody seen that? Um, part of the appeal of NFL football is, and I think has always been, that we feel like we can participate. I mean, what diehard fan doesn't feel like they could make better draft decision trades than his dumb general manager on his favorite team? I mean, we can all second-guess those things and get uh, better players for our team. We can probably make better play calls than our coaches, right? I mean, I know for sure that if I had been uh, the 49ers coach last year in the Super Bowl, I would not have called three straight pass plays that went incomplete and lost the game for them. Come on, you got Colin Kaepernick, run the option, right? I mean, we, we know what's going to work. And uh, Redskins fans, I mean, weren't you all yelling at the TV and the coaches and say, take RG3 out, he's going to get hurt, and... Last game of the last season, sure enough, he did, right? I mean, we we know better. We have great, brilliant insights into this game, if you're a true fan. I don't really get the same rush out of watching golf. Should have used a seven iron. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you do. I'm sure there's other sports. But football, I mean, you can really get into it, especially now that we all have our fantasy teams. We're drafting in a week and a half, a couple leagues in the church. Um, with football, watching football, man, fans become the expert analysts, aren't they? I mean, we can make better decisions all the time. 
If we had been in the game, we certainly wouldn't have thrown interceptions. We certainly wouldn't have let the receiver get past us in the secondary, right? But as with all things in life, it's a lot, heck of a lot easier to criticize and analyze other people's choices and abilities than it is to actually do it ourselves. I mean, the problem with me being an armchair quarterback is I have never put on pads and played tackle football. I've played a lot of flag football, sure, against middle schoolers, so I dominate. But, I mean, I have never, I've never played in you know, high school, college. I don't really know the game. I don't know what it's like to try to tackle a 230-pound man going full speed. And I think a lot of the armchair quarterbacks who can make these calls haven't either. Now, maybe sports don't resonate with you, and, and, but this certainly applies to a lot of areas of life. Uh, let's try some other areas. Every male in my family of origin, my brothers, my dad, we, we're all brilliant movie critics. Okay, My brother has a blog about it, and we can analyze and dissect any movie that comes out, tell you how good it is, what the weakness is, yet none of us have ever acted written a screenplay, directed anything. It's easy to make fun of politicians, people in the news who are out there. We, we laugh at their speeches or their, their uh, positions when the most politically active we get is maybe voting once a year or signing online petitions. I mean, it's so easy to criticize where we're not involved, isn't it? Well, in today's passage, Jesus goes after armchair quarterbacks. Not football. Uh, we're leaving kind of the realms of sports. But people who sat on the sidelines judging those who were actually involved. And he's going to talk about how he and John the Baptist lived their lives, ministered to people, and the sharp criticisms they heard from each side, especially because they had sort of opposite approaches, as you'll see. And those criticisms fall flat because the critics aren't part of the game. They're not involved. They're not involved in the kingdom work that Jesus is saying needs to happen. So as we work our way through the book of Matthew, we are up to Matthew chapter 11. So you can turn there, or it's in your sermon outline. Chapter 11, verses 11 through 19. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, 
and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth this morning from your inerrant, perfect word. Help us to wrestle, to understand Jesus' words here in a, in a somewhat difficult passage, but that can speak to us in profound ways. Lord, open our minds to that. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time that I read through these verses carefully, I thought, man, I, I just have so many questions. I mean, how can I be greater than the greatest? How are violent people attacking heaven, the kingdom? I mean, who's playing the flute? Who's, who's resisting the dancing? Should I be like John and, and refrain from eating and drinking, or should I be like Jesus and, and jump right in? Well, I think the answer is always be like Jesus, but I, I wonder if you had some of those same questions as you read through this. There's, there's a lot to wrestle with. And I don't know if I'll be able to answer all of your questions or even mine this morning, but let's, let's give it a shot. You can always keep studying in the weeks to come. Uh, nine verses, though. And the, the context, if we were to back up, if you were here for Jeff's sermon uh, last week, is that John was in prison. John the Baptist had been imprisoned by Herod, and he needs a little bit of confirmation. Jeff talked about the fact that at one point in his life, I mean, earlier in his ministry, he was so confident, and he prophesied about Jesus coming, but now he's saying he just wanted to make sure. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and they say, are, are you really the one? Are you really the guy? And Jesus essentially says, hey, just go back to John and say, this is what you see. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, all of those things. The good news is preached to the poor. And he, so Jesus somewhat confirms this to John, but he takes the opportunity to also confirm to everyone listening. He turns to them, and, and then he, he talks about John. And he builds up John, and he's going to keep doing that in this passage. This is somewhat of a continuation. And in building up John, he's going to teach us about himself and about us. So as we read, especially the first part, verses 11 through 15, we'll get insight into the first question I had, how to be greater than the greatest. So let me read those verses again, verses 11 through 15. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's start on verse 11. Verse 11 
right off is a little hard to understand. But I think it's a little easier if we sort of get in a, a framework, a, uh, the way that the writer of the Hebrews argues and lays out his case. If We need to hear this as the logic and the formula that the writer of Hebrews uses, comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Comparing the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament of the Hebrew nation, slaughtering animals, he compares that and he says, no, now we have a greater covenant and a greater sacrifice in Christ once for all. And he keeps comparing Jesus, who's greater than Moses, greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, everything. This is the logic. Start with the old covenant and say, but you have such a greater thing. I know the high school students have been studying that in uh, Sunday school. So you remember this logic. And so we need to read verse 11 with that emphasis. John belonged to the age of the old covenant. And he was actually the culmination of the, everything that had come before him. Right? That's verse 13. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John. He was the last of the prophets. Why? Because... He's there when Jesus steps onto the scene. The prophecies all point to Jesus. So no one's now prophesying ahead for the Messiah. Everyone since then will be prophesying, but will be reflecting back. The new reality that was being ushered in with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was here all things would change. Suddenly, the new kingdom of heaven was available to all who are saved by faith in Christ. John never got to see all of that, right? Herod ends up killing him in prison, and he doesn't get to see the end of Jesus' life. He's not around for his resurrection. So the least of today's believers, or anyone after John, knows, can know, and experience the things that John never did. So in a sense, we are in a greater position than John. Not because we do greater things than John. John preached with the strongest of convictions and followed God no matter what it cost. And we're not really talking about what he did, but because of what God has done for us. I mean, Jesus isn't criticizing John. He's not saying that somehow he's not going to be in the kingdom. I, I think you can misunderstand that verse there. But it's starting with the old and saying there's a greater reality. He's building John up as high as he can, but then he's springing off that to say, if you think John was blessed spiritually, wait until you see about being part of my kingdom. And he, Jesus tells us, John is Elijah. Come. Remember Elijah? the great prophet in the Old Testament, uh, we read in the responsive reading, the Malachi chapter 4. And verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So that's what Jesus is referring to here. If you felt like that was, what does that mean? It's referring to this prophecy that the Hebrews had. 
that the Jews were waiting for an Elijah to come. It had been 400 years since Malachi had written that. 400 years of waiting. John is the new Elijah crying out in the wilderness. Uh, Flash forward to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. I think that's in your outline too, or if you've got your Bibles open. Chapter 17, 10 through 13. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So if you have ears to hear, if you have the ability to understand what Jesus is saying, you you see John's unique role in preparing his generation for Jesus' coming. But before we move on to uh, verses 16 through 19, let's let's pull verse 12 out as well. Let's spend a little time on that because it shows up in books that have titles like Hard Sayings of Jesus and What Did Jesus Mean? I mean, this is one of those that that they bring up. This is a hard passage. Verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, who are the the violent, and and how are they assaulting the kingdom? Well, first... uh, Understanding this verse uh, turns a lot on how you interpret the Greek verbs here. And and without getting too technical, uh, you don't need need to remember this, but there's a verb uh, halfway through, biazetai. It's translated in the ESV. You've actually got uh, in the sermon outline, you've got the ESV and the NIV right next to each other. And if you read them, there's a little different emphasis, and I'm just explaining why. That verb can be translated in the passive voice to say the kingdom has suffered violence, but just as legitimately it can be translated in the middle voice so that it says the kingdom is forcefully advancing. You see the difference there? It's either happening to the kingdom or the kingdom is advancing violently. And then the second part, another verb, you could either translate it the violent take it by force or forceful men lay hold of it. So there's a little little different emphasis. So you look at those two translations side by side, they're saying a little bit different thing. Um, You can either read that the violence and the violent men are assaulting the kingdom, or that the kingdom is going forth violently and strong men help advance it. So let's let's work through the implications of those translations. The first one, if you take the ESV's uh, translation, uh, the kingdom is being assaulted. I think it makes a lot of sense because John is in prison, right? Herod is one of those violent men who is assaulting the kingdom. The implication is that violent men are, are trying to keep the kingdom from advancing, and this is probably a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. And the religious leaders who will get together with the Romans and crucify him. The violence coming up at the end of Jesus' life. Now if you take the NIV rendering, 
it makes a lot more sense when you compare it to Luke 16, 16, which I don't think I put in your outline. But listen to what Luke 16, 16 says. It's a parallel passage. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So it sounds a lot more like what, we're, what the NIV translates. And since John had pre- preached repentance, and now Jesus is healing people and preaching the good news, people have a great eagerness, a violent zeal, if you will, to enter the kingdom. And it, it seems that Jesus is saying that people must hold on to the kingdom forcefully. The world is evil and will do everything it can to snatch us away from the Lord. I really think these, these pa- this passage is pointing back to verse 8. If you've got your Bible open, I, I didn't write that one down either. But Matthew 11, verse uh, 8. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. And the Greek word malakos, another one here, is, is translated as soft clothing, can also mean delicate or effeminate. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, you didn't go out to see this delicate flower in the wilderness. You went out to see a strong man of conviction. Someone who was willing to tell it like it is, speaking out no matter the consequences. Now, there is, if you've seen in the outline, if you looked ahead, there is a both and option. And I read a number of commentators like Dan Doriani and Ron Rhodes who think that it is best to understand both meanings. I don't know of any translations that that give you both meanings. But if you look at them side by side, it can mean either one. And it's very possible that Jesus meant to say it in this way, a little vague, so that both of the implications would be understood. Because either way whether violent men are assaulting the kingdom or forceful violent men are advancing the kingdom, whether you have enemies or advocates, either way, the kingdom is advancing. And when Christ's kingdom advances, it pushes back the kingdom of darkness. And the enemy will respond. The enemy will push back. We need to expect opposition, even violent opposition, when the true gospel is preached, where spiritual growth and vitality are evident. If you were here for Frank Pugh's sermon a few weeks ago, he underscored that very well as he preached on Jesus' warnings to his followers that they would be persecuted. Violent opposition demands that we not be wimps. We need to be able to stand up, not in the sense of fighting back physically, but able to endure persecution and able to stand strong in our beliefs, in our message. I often hear of very nice young men who people come up to them and say, oh, you're so sweet and nice and religious. You should, you should go to seminary, be pastor. You would, you would comfort everyone and love them. And I cringe. Because 
I know that the ministry is going to beat them up if that's all they've got. I'm not certainly not saying we need mean, offensive people as our pastors, but if they don't have a backbone, if they can't handle being criticized, if they aren't willing to confront people, if they aren't willing to step up, make a stand, speak hard truths, they're not going to be very effective for long. And I speak from experience in an area of growth. But I'm not just going to make that application for church staff. Every follower of Jesus needs to think through how much they believe this stuff, how much they are willing to fight for the kingdom. I'm not advocating real violence like the Crusades, right? I'm not saying we need to go pick fights and be offensive. But we need people who have righteous conviction, who are willing to go to the mat. Violent people are passionate and determined. They're not passive. Jesus has very little tolerance for the lukewarm, the apathetic. We need people of courage and vigor like John. And the good news is it takes all personalities. We don't just want the type A's, go get them. Any person can stand for the Lord where they are. But regardless of how we live and act, it is likely that we will experience what John and Jesus did, being misrepresented, misunderstood, generally rejected. Let's look at the end of this passage, verses 16 through 19. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For Jesus came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I'm sure many of you have listened to children argue about what game to play, right? Kind of a constant theme in my house, and when we have friends over, and uh, you know the girls have to argue about whether they're going to play dolls next or have a dance party. Uh, the boys argue about whether to play video games or go outside and play with lightsabers. I'm sure that's very familiar. You probably remember that from your own childhood. I remember one of my, one of my boys coming home uh, from visiting a friend's house and saying, Dad, I, I don't want to hang out with him anymore. I just want to sit and talk or, or watch TV or play a game, and he just wants to go out in the back and cut things down with his machete. And I was kind of like, ah, that would have been me when I was a kid. Let's go blaze a trail. But they argue, and uh, it escalates, and you don't know if you're supposed to intervene or what. But I get that sense as I read verse 16 and 17 here. I used to think that it meant that, that uh, the children were calling out to people passing by who weren't kind of responding to their uh, wanting them to dance or to mourn. But I, I, I see it, I think it's a, bit, a lot better understanding 
is that the children are arguing with each other. And half of them are saying, hey, we, we wanted to dance and be joyful. Maybe they, they wanted to reenact a wedding. That, that happens at my house, too. Um, I've married both my daughters at different times. So, um, hey, let's put on a wedding. Let's, let's be joyful and dance and sing. And then the other half are sitting there saying, no, let's, let's, let's do a funeral. Well, you know, fun game back then, I guess. Let's, let's some kind of mourning, a different tone, and they can't agree what to do. And the reason I've changed my mind about this verse, these verses, and what they mean is that they are, they seem much better connected to 18 and 19, and they're connected by the word for, and it it makes sense when you link John's ministry and his lifestyle of calling people to repentance and austere living with those kids who wanted the funeral. They wanted to be somber. And then you take Jesus' lifestyle of being among the people, healing and teaching and preaching and and loving them and generally just bringing joy. And that links with the children who wanted to dance and to celebrate. So in those, those verses, Jesus says, hey, there's criticism from both sides of the fence, and there's not a lot of intellectual integrity because we lived opposite ways, and they criticized both of us. I mean, John lived out in the wilderness rebuking people, playing the role of a prophet, and people said, he's, he's mean. He must be demon-possessed, right? And yet Jesus lived very differently among the people, He partied. He was part of everything. And he loved people. And then they said, they accused him of being a hedonist, an addict, having the wrong friends. Now, I would have loved to have a whole sermon just on those two verses, verses 18 and 19. I think there is so much there we could talk about. I mean, starting, you can't please everyone, right? And so don't even try. Uh, But certainly our approach to culture. Um, but let me go with uh, one of the commentators, Craig Keener, a summary of, of these verses and his understanding. Neither Jesus nor John accumulated earthly resources for earthly pleasure, but Jesus accepted invitations to upscale banquets, while John was a wilderness prophet. Jesus came partly as God's ambassador to initiate relations with sinners whereas John primarily took the role of biblical prophets in times of persecution. Jesus was a missionary within the culture. John, a critic from outside it. Both models are biblical, but suit different situations. When we can influence a culture from within without compromise, we should do so. When the culture becomes so hostile to our master that we must stand as witnesses Outside, let us do so without regret. That's a good summary. There's so much more to say and apply in that area, but it's not going to fit in this sermon, except to say that we're called to engage people around us, to live in the world, not of it. I mean, just, just to make the point very quickly, sometimes sitting down, watching a ball game with my neighbor, will disarm 
him and his fear of talking to the Christian, the pastor down the street. And hopefully I can be strategic in speaking truth and love and the gospel into his life, into people around me that I socialize with, and model in a small way Jesus' ministry. And yet, other times, I am called to stand for truth and rebuke people for their actions. And in in that way, model John's ministry, although clearly Jesus did his share of rebuking as well. Sometimes God calls us to be prophetic. Sometimes he calls us to act full of gentleness and grace. Now, I love how Jesus ends his discourse here. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, criticize us all you want. But you'll see there are reasons why we act that way. Just as as the reasons I acted as I do, and the reasons John acted, our ministries will be proved worthy by their spiritual results, by God's blessing on those who hear and respond. And this is an echo of what John what Jesus just said to John's disciples. Hey, what's happening? People are responding. The blind can see, the deaf hear, the poor hear, the good news. This is what my ministry brings. You can find any excuse you need to avoid following Jesus or getting involved in church. Not that those always overlap, but we naturally look around and find reasons you, you may say that the Bible and Christianity is just for old ladies or little children, right? Because it's just all that love and forgiveness and meekness. Or maybe you're on the other side and you, your criticism is that the Bible is violent and the Bible is too exclusive and not enlightened enough for our modern sensibilities. Either side. We can criticize. Uh, You can blame the church because they're too old-fashioned, irrelevant. Or you can blame the church because it's too modern and it's trying to just fit into the culture too much. You can look at Christians and say that they're too pious, they're too different, they're too weird from the rest of us. Or you can look at Christians and say... (laughs) They're no different than us. They watch the same things we do. Why should I be a Christian if it doesn't make a difference in your life? I've heard all of those reasons. And you've probably got a decent case with any of those you want to pick. There's a lot of truth sprinkled in there. But eventually you are going to have to strip away all the excuses. Stop finding reasons to blame others to excuse yourself. You've got to come face to face someday with the questions. What do I believe? What is going to happen to me when I die? You can try to armchair quarterback your spiritual life all you want, but eventually you're going to have to get off the couch and either get in the game or you're going to miss the kingdom. And getting into the kingdom is not hard. 
and it's impossible at the same time. It is a true change of heart. But it's acknowledging your sinfulness, admitting that you can't save yourself, recognizing that Jesus, who was fully God while being fully man, came to present himself as a sacrifice in your place, taking the punishment for your sin, and that life everlasting is free and there for you to take. I was uh, sitting on the beach in Maine a couple weeks ago, and I wasn't seeking out people to witness to necessarily, but I got in a conversation with someone that I know casually. And we started talking about the Scriptures and about Jesus' claims to be sin on our behalf and how that bridges our relationship to God. And I knew he had heard a lot about it, but he, he kind of came back with, well, yeah, okay, that sounds good, but I don't want to just like choose Jesus and, and believe the Bible because of all this bad stuff, right? I, I don't want to just believe it because it's going to help me get out of hell and uh, that I'm feeling threatened. I want to I just enjoy it and, and accept it from a posture of love and I said, well, that, hey, I understand that. That's great. I, I, you know, Christianity is, just, is not just about avoiding hell. It's about embracing the God who created you and loved you. And so I tried to give them both sides. But then I said, your son's playing over there on the beach. Uh, he's got two sons. And what if they were out swimming and we saw a shark heading his way? I mean, would you turn to me and say, gosh, I'd like to go save my sons, but I don't want to do it because they're in danger. I don't want to do it because they're threatened and it's like the negative part. I want to do it just because I love them, right? No way you would hit the water and go get them and yell. Do everything you can. I don't know if that got through. But we embrace the kingdom because it brings us back into full fellowship with God. And there's the negative news that you've got to believe and accept and overcome. But there's the great goal of being forgiven in Christ and given eternal life. Beloved, don't put off dealing with spiritual issues in your life until sometime in the future. Do it now. Be passionate. Be determined even violent, to find the kingdom. Don't rest until you know you have eternal life. Don't be passive and assume that someday you'll figure it all out. Seek God. Find the way that he wants you to live. And for those that know they have the kingdom, we need you to embrace it. We need you to help it forcefully advance. God calls you off the couch and involved. I could give you a list, but I don't want to do that for you. I'll let the Holy Spirit speak to you. How do I get off the couch as an armchair quarterback? How do I get in the game? How can I help the kingdom responding to what God has done for me? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your scriptures.
that teach us all truth. They are ultimate point of reference. Lord, thank you for Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life, John's ministry. Thank you for how we've studied each one here in our study of Matthew. And John prophetically called people to repentance and prepared the way for Jesus' perfect life and willingness to go to the cross and to suffer violence, to be killed. Jesus, who was God, was put to death because we sin and someone's got to pay the penalty. God, help us to understand that, embrace it. Thank you for it. That is the kingdom. May Lord help us to apply Jesus' difficult words here to our lives. May we set aside the smoke screens, the excuses that we bring up to avoid having to make a decision. We don't deal with the truth because we can point to people who don't do it well or we just don't like their style, the way they do things. Lord, pierce through. Bring the truth to our hearts. Lord, may this community of believers be known for loving your truth, for being convinced of the truth of the gospel and that it changes people's hearts. And we would embrace the kingdom, that we'd be strong men and women who forcefully work to advance the kingdom with great love. Lord, help us to sort out the questions of of Christian freedom that are raised as we are in the world loving people. Help us to wrestle with the implications of this passage and to love you more. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Hear the benediction from 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure your suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.